Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. What are you guys doing during the week that you respond more with sinners than saints? That's what I need to know and ask. So I want to thank you for adapting. And I'm trying to figure out this communion cup. It's just driving me absolutely nuts. Um, to our time changes as we adjust to these ever-changing COVID restrictions. Um, quite interesting, at least for me. It, uh, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose it, my salvation with that thing. Um, yeah, just I have a normal routine I go through every Sunday morning, and then it's messed up as we go earlier. But all gatherings are full, so that is a good thing. It's important for us to gather together. I'm glad that you're here. And for those who have brought your kids, I trust our packets are, are helping them. And uh, would appreciate your feedback as to how we can make it a better experience for your children. Anyway, let's talk about sequels. You ready about this? How many of you like sequels? You know, the continuation of a story. <laughs> you watch your favorite movie, you read your favorite book, and somebody comes up with this great idea, hey, let's do a sequel. And of course, book publishers will often take somebody who has a bestseller and, and uh, create some sort of follow-up. And Hollywood has learned the value of sequels, right? Because of the movie industry. And the sequel is always interesting because either it's going to be a hit like The Dark Knight or um, Lord of the Rings or La National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, or it's going to be a stinker like anything after The Matrix or Dumb and Dumber 2 or fill in the blank. There's just lots of stinkers out there. And what you may not realize is that the Bible contains a sequel as well. And as we are walking through the Minor Prophets, we come to the next book in our series, and it's the book of Nahum. And uh, I've entitled today's uh, life lesson, Jonah the Sequel. So, if I can refresh you, Jonah is the story of the disobedient prophet who refused to follow God's call to preach to the wicked uh, um, city called Nineveh. Jonah tries to run away. He boards a ship, heads in the opposite direction of Nineveh. God sends... Um, a great storm his way and eventually Jonah is thrown overboard because well it was determined that he was at fault it was his cause then God sends a great fish to save Jonah and then God um, directs that fish to take this good fish that is to take this bad prophet and throw him up on dry ground and now Jonah is given a second chance to go to Nineveh Jonah accepts that challenge but he's reluctant to deliver God's message of repentance. Why the reluctance? Well, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, mortal enemy of Israel. He hates them. It's a wicked city. It's the epitome of everything that Jonah hated in the world. The Ninevites had this reputation, when you think about it, of cruelty, which is very hard for us to fathom in our day what they did to other people. And when their armies moved in on a country, the soldiers would perform unspeakable atrocities. And it would be fair to say that everybody feared and hated the Assyrians. So, eventually Jonah agrees to preach God's message of repentance to Nineveh. But he kept it short. He basically said, you're going to die. That's all he said. And much to Jonah's chagrin, Nineveh repents. And because of that, God spares Nineveh his judgment. And we finish with Jonah being angry at God because God actually relents. And Jonah knew that was going to happen. So now, where we find ourselves with Nahum is that we're anywhere between 100 to 150 years later. 
And uh, the children and the grandchildren have been born in Nineveh. There's new kings that have ascended to the Syrian Empire's throne. And guess what happened to the repentance? They repented of it. Their turnaround? <laughs> well, they did a turnaround. And the time of sorrow uh, over evil was actually just a hiccup in their legacy of oppression and brutality. This is where we find ourselves. And once again, they sought to capture, they sought to torture and enslave other nations. Welcome to Assyria. And then what happens is that Assyria now attacks Israel. And they invade, so they go through all of the northern part of Israel, and they go and to invade Judah, and they overrun the out, uh, outlying towns, and they surround Jerusalem. This is where we find ourselves, 100, 150 years after Jonah. And so now what we have is God sent Nahum with a divine message. And so it's interesting, there's actually a little life lesson in all of this story, is that repentance that doesn't last isn't really repentance. You know, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but he'll never leave the guilty unpunished. And so now, we have the sequel. And when you take time to compare Jonah and Nahum, it's actually quite fascinating. The Jonah was this book about mercy, the mercy of God. When you look at the book of Nahum, it's a book of judgment. It's the judgment of God. So Jonah's about 800 B.C., Nahum's about 650 B.C. The book of Jonah, emphasize, the emphasis is on the prophet. The whole story of Jonah focuses around the prophet and not his prophecy. But the emphasis in Nahum that we're going to look at today is not about the prophet, it's about the prophecy. And Jonah is a disobedient prophet, while Nahum is the obedient prophet. And then Jonah... We read about deliverance from water, right? The fish. In Nahum, we read about destruction by water. And finally, Jonah is about the repentance of Nineveh, and Nahum is about the destruction, its complete destruction. Now, Nahum is not an easy book to read. I have to throw that out you at first. As a matter of fact, there are many people who actually wish that Nahum was never in our canon, was never in the Bible. Why? It's because of the content of the book. As a matter of fact, the content of the book of Nahum has been almost totally ignored by the church today. The church does not want to look at this book, which should actually heighten your interest in it. Because in a nutshell, all this speaks about, well, I shouldn't say all, the majority of this speaks about is God's judgment. And in this prophecy, there, there is an attitude which Nahum was given to reveal about God. And that was his anger, his wrath. And there's no doctrine quite repugnant to people today than the anger of God. We don't want to talk about the anger of God. And this is one doctrine which many people would like to simply forget. There are those who want to picture God as a kindly grandfather with a little twinkle in his eye who cannot bear the thought of punishing anyone or judging anyone, and nevertheless... When we look at scripture, we see it was Nahum's task to unfold the anger of God when it comes to justice. So, again, if you're turning, tuning in for the first time, and you're, as we continue through our series of the Minor Prophets, five questions we ask. Who wrote the book? Where are we in history? Why is this book important? What is the main message, and how do I apply it to my life? So, who wrote the book? Well, the only mention of the, the author, really, is Nahum the El-Koshite, 
and occurs in the first, book, uh, first verse. It refers to either his birthplace or his place of ministry. Nobody's really quite sure. Scholars propose a number of theories about Nahum, uh, about his hometown. It's possibly the town of El Kosh. Uh, but the best guess is that it's some, some place south, south, southern Judah, probably near where Micah um, lived himself. Nahum's name means comforter, uh, consolation or... Um, uh, relief. And again, so here you have a guy whose name is saying something. Comforter. And, uh, and it's important as his prophecy is against the city of Nineveh. Um, and that's significant for the people of Judah who are listening to Nahum. So Nahum is coming, he's talking to the people of Judah, but he's talking to Nineveh. And uh, they were the people who needed to hear this. They're being oppressed. They're being overrun. They're being conquered. They need this encouragement of Nahum, if I could put it that way. Uh, they're in the face of this terrifying power of the Assyrian Empire. They're glad to hear, when you think about it, that Nineveh is going to get their just desserts. That's what this book is all about. So again, where are we in history? Because there's no mention of kings in the introduction. Um, and so what you have to do is you actually have to go to historical data to verify Nahum's story. And in Nahum 3.8, we read about the recent fall of the city of either uh, Noamon or better known as Thebes. Uh, we know that this occurred in 663 BC. So now we actually have a physical timeline. And historically, we know that the city of Nineveh fell to the Medes and the Babylonians in 612. It did. It was wiped off the face of the earth. So Nahum preached sometime in that 50-year period. And so he would have been a contemporary of Zephaniah and Jeremiah and perhaps even Joel. In Nahum 2.6, we have this amazing direct prophecy of a manner in which Nineveh would be taken. Now this is fascinating. You read, it says, the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. Nahum 2.6. The Greek historian uh, Diodorus, I love these names, Diodorus uh, Siculus, he recorded an account of how the city of Nineveh fell, and this is what he said. So even Greek historians are very well aware of what's going on here. There was an old prophecy that Nineveh should not be taken till the river became an enemy of the city. He knows about Nahum's prophecy. And in the third year of the siege, the river uh, being swollen with continual lanes, overflowed every part of the city, broke down the wall for 20 furlongs. Then the king, thinking that the oracle was fulfilled and the river became the enemy of the city, built a large funeral pile in the palace and collected together all his wealth, his concubines, his eunuchs, and burnt himself and the palace with them all. And the enemy entered the breach that the waters had made and took the city. In other words... The Babylonian armies came through the place where the river had broken out and flooded the city. And because of this mistaken idea of the kings, the Babylonians found themselves all gathered in the palace where they had put, basically put everybody else to death in, in, the own, in his kingdom. And again, this is exactly what Nahum predicted years before. Fun fact, after the destruction of Babylon in 612 BC, the site of Nineveh, was not rediscovered until 1842. 
So yeah, it is an actual place. It's not fairy tale. We have this very clear historical uh, document. So we can presume that Nahum preached during the reign, when we look into the Old Testament, of King Manasseh. Now, he's one of the most evil kings in Judah's long history. You can read a bit of a story in Second Kings and also in Second Chronicles, and I, I think I have the reference up on the screen. But he has a conversion experience in Chronicles, which is fascinating. And most commentators feel that Nahum preached during this darkest period in Judah's history. So why is this all so important? This is that continuation of the story of Jonah. And so a century after Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, she returns back to her idolatry, her violence, her, um, excuse me, her arrogance. I'm going to cough. In my gra- Whoa, there we go. <laughs> it's not COVID. I've been working in my garage all day yesterday. It's all that dust. <laughs> anyway, Assyria was at the height of her power. She conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. She's lording uh, the power over them. She's moving down into uh, Judah. You can read about that in 2 Kings. Jonah failed to realize. What Jonah failed to realize, sorry. Um, Sorry, Jonah failed to realize what Nahum reminded the people of Judah. That God's justice is always right and always sure. And should God choose to grant mercy for a time, that good gift will not compromise God's unattainable sense of justice for all to the end. God could do what he wants. That's the sovereign part of him. And so a serious demise turned out just as God and, uh, uh, had Nahum prophesy. So God's hand is on there. What's the main message? Nahum only has a negative message of judgment against Nineveh. That's the whole message of this book. It's straightforward. It's a prophetic announcement of judgment against Assyria and their capital for the cruel atrocities, the adulterous practices. And so this prophecy is not directed at Israel. It's not directed at Judah. Rather, its words of destruction are slated specifically for Nineveh. And we need to be honest, the message of judgment is often one that we would not rather discuss, especially as Christians, especially during this time in our culture. See, our belief system would rather we exclude punishment for wrong when it occurs in our own sins. We don't want that. We're not a people prone to accountability. We don't want that. Or worse, retribution. We would rather not believe that there are consequences for our actions. We can do whatever we want in our culture without punishment. We think we can go on and we can avoid any reprisal for doing wrong. Nahum brings it to our attention that we should know differently. Now you can divide this book into three parts. Chapter 1, basically 1 to 15, is, is all about the judge. Talks about God's attributes, like his wrath, his power, and his goodness. Chapter 2, 1 to 13, is the judgment. It forecasts the coming of Nineveh's enemies and the attack on Nineveh's defenses, the plundering of the city, and finally its destruction. And then chapter 3 is the justification of it all, and it's seen in chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. Interesting book, troubling book. And the whole book as a whole clearly shows God's concern over sin. His willingness to punish those guilty of wickedness and to, uh, his power to carry out his desire 
for judgment. But it also, when you look at it, contains these rays of hope shining through the darkness. And yet God intended Nahum to be a message of comfort for Judah. Think about it that way. Yes, it's talking about his judgment, his judgment over sin, but it's also a book of comfort. And the people of Judah would have immediately taken hope in the idea that Nineveh, who was their primary oppressor for generations, would soon come under the judgment of God. I could hardly wait, right? And and it sounds a little sick and twisted, but it truly is. And as a small but faithful remnant in Judah would have been comforted by these declarations of God, right? Slowness to anger. Listen to these. uh, there's, There's three actually passages of encouragement I want you to listen to. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and his clouds are in the dust of his feet. Talks about his goodness and strength. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. Can you imagine being in the darkest time of your life, and these are the words that you're hearing as a prophet comes and speaks? And finally, his restorative power. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Through the destroyers have laid them waste, and have ruined their vines. In other words, it's going to end. It's going to be okay. And because of that, I think God means for us to believe that it's a message of comfort even for us during our dark times. But I'll get to that shortly. So how do you apply this book? This is the crazy part. Here we have one of the most difficult books in the Bible, It's also one of the most neglected. It's one of the most obscure. It's so small that it's seldom read and much less um, frequently. It's it's hardly understood. And it's, I have to be honest, it's not an easy book to apply to our lives. But we believe that every portion of scripture is indispensable. This is why Paul could actually write in the New Testament when he wrote to Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for regression, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, there has to be something in this passage, in this book for us. And this little prophecy of Nahum is no exception to what Paul's talking about. The next message is about Nineveh. But the message is to Judah. And this is important when we understand the book, when you're reading it. So here is the lesson through the lens of Judah. It's all about faith in dark times. We can trust God with all the evil uh, of this world, and God gets that final word against evil. He does. Martin Luther said, Nahum teaches us to trust God and to believe, especially when we despair of all human help, human powers, and all counsel. That the Lord stands by those who are his, shields of his own against all attacks of the enemy, be they ever so powerful. So what we see in Nahum is that judgment is coming because of the character of God. This means we need to look at the circumstances in light of who God is. So out of all the other books, there was always this mirror that we could look at. Now I need you to turn on your theological mind. Because this is what it's all about. This book reveals quite a lot about the character of God. First of all, it reveals that God is sovereign. He's very much sovereign. He is in control of both nature and nations. We realize that when we read Jonah, and now we read this one. With Jonah, he was in control of nature. He sent a storm. He sent a fish. 
made the fish puke, right? He, you can't tell me he's not in control. And now he's in control of nations here in Nahum. He used the Babylonians to bring his judgment on the Assyrians. He used the flood as well. He controls nature to help the Babylonians win. The second thing, God is also just. Assyria's judgment was well-deserved. They deserved it. They were brutal people. And although God used them to discipline Israel at other times in history, it went to their heads and they attributed their success to their own power, their own God, and Yahweh did not appreciate that. And so God also dealt with the Assyrians in an appropriate way in which they had dealt with other nations. In other words, many of the same atrocities that they committed on others were actually committed on them by the Babylonians and the Medes. It was payback. It was pay payback's a monster. And that's exactly what this is. And finally, when you think about it, God does protect his people. And God used the Assyrians to discipline Israel. That was part of it. That was part of the prophecies that we've gone through. But he would also take notice of those who were faithful, faithful to him. So why is God judging? Because God cares for those who trust in him. Because God will judge those who violate his law. Like again, when, when we talk about this, especially in 2021, we don't like this word judge. We don't like this word of a terrifying God, a wrathful God. No. But this is a message of condemnation for those who disobey God. It's also, though, a message of consolation for those who trust and obey him. Nineveh exalted herself, as she, but she was then humbled by God. You think about it, it's no different than the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee compares himself to the tax collector as they're praying in the temple, and he exalts himself before God. The tax collector was humble. He asked for mercy, right? Beat on his chest. And Jesus is the one, when he tells the story, he says that it was the tax collector who went away justified. So when we exalt ourselves, God humbles us. There's a principle there. And Assyria compromised her values to gain wealth, to gain power. And so God took her down, leveled her. And you know what? That whole concept is something that we still struggle with today. Nahum wants to correct our understanding about God in, in ways that challenge our culture and our Christian subculture assumptions about who God is. So this book is about God's wrath and judgment. God is angry, but it's not a tenter tantrum. You have to understand that. There's nothing impulsive about the anger of God here. There is nothing selfish about it. It is controlled, but we would call it a terrible rage that is fearsome to see. And you can get some idea of the awfulness of this divine anger and the fact that all Hebrew words for wrath and anger are brought together just in the first six verses of this book. The words are jealous, vengeance, wrath, anger, indignation, fierceness, and fury. Like it was making a point. All of them describe the anger of God, but at the same time, you got to remember, at the same time, this is a message of comfort in the midst of suffering. It's a word of hope, if you believe it or not, but it's a word of hope in a dark time of evil. And so it's not a message that is lost at all. That God maintains, when you think about it, 
when your world is falling apart, God maintains final control. And again, the message of judgment is something that we often don't want to discuss at all. Our belief system would rather exclude punishment for wrong when it comes to its concerns for our sins. We're not a, like I said, we're not a people prone to accountability or retribution. We, we rather not believe that there are those consequences. We need to know differently. What we have to understand when we look at the scripture is that um, the God of love that we so often are attracted to is also a God of judgment. And granted, the idea of judgment doesn't fit within the picture that we want of a loving God. In fact, it stretches our minds to envision a God of judgment, but somehow the idea does not mesh with the goodness of God. This is what our culture is teaching us. And the fact is, is that God brings judgment as a part of his goodness. In the same way that one asks, how can a good God allow evil to exist? Which people do, obviously. You also have to ask, how can a loving God not punish the evildoer? One commentator wrote, God's judgment is an inevitable expression of his goodness on behalf of the victims of evil. Look at it this way. What gets you angry? Isn't it almost always when someone or something, let's say, this is something or someone that you loved is, is violated, right? Something is violated. Something is threatened. Something is injured. Maybe it yourself. Maybe it's our loved ones. What, what makes us angry? What makes us angry? Somebody violates us, however you want to put it. And, and because we love ourselves, we get mad. We get mad at them, right? When you're driving and you get cut off, why are you mad? Well, because you love yourself and you didn't want to have an accident. You think the person's stupid. We have reflective names for them, right? Because it's all about us. We are violated in that process. It's interesting. And if you cannot get angry, when you hear or see injury and injustice, then it's proof that you are incapable of love. The one who cannot be angry is the one who cannot love. If you can read stories of atrocities and oppression and the awful traffic of body-destroying, soul-destroying drugs in our culture, in narcotics, or of human trafficking amongst our population, and not be burned with anger, then I have to say there's something wrong with you. We should become livid when we read that there's another child victim that's been abused or another innocent victim that has been murdered or exploited. And when you have love, you feel the need for retribution. You know, for God to sit idly by and never deal with those issues would give us cause for great concern. God is not amoral. He is loving, but he's also just. 
And in loving justice, he will powerfully adjudicate over his creation, right? Because he's sovereign. So God executes his judgment out of his love. Our problem is, is that we often execute our judgment out of hate. Many people are very uncomfortable with God's role as judge. They prefer the meek, mild savior. We want Jesus light, right? Soft and squishy. We want love and we want forgiveness, but not the accountability and not the judgment. And in the Bible, we have a very clear picture that Jesus, the one who was slain for our sins, will be the one executing judgment for our sin. Just read the book. So God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is the only one qualified to be both Savior and judge. This is what the scriptures teach. And for example, a young man's trying to cross the road at a corner. He didn't notice an oncoming truck. And as he began to cross at the last moment, the strong hand grabbed him and pulled him back. Pulled him back to safety of the curve. Saves his life. The young man's filled with fear. He's filled with adrenaline. Thanks the man for saving him. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Several weeks later, that same young man is in court. He's standing trial. Why? Because he stole a car. He got caught. Looks up, who does he see walk into the room and sit behind the big desk, but rather a judge. But the interesting thing is that this young man recognized the judge. He says, hey, you're the guy who saved me a few weeks back when that truck was coming. Surely you can do something for, you, for me now. To which the magistrate replied, sorry, son, on that day I was your savior. Today I'm your judge. Do you see the difference? See, all people have the opportunity to repent and to experience the benefit of salvation just as the Ninevites had that opportunity when Jonah, in fact, came and preached. And in fact, Jesus longs for all people to come to repentance. We read that in Scripture. But when we stand before God, who will be the judge, the opportunity is then gone. And at that point in time, just read the end of the book, judgment will be executed. That's the book. So it does us good to be reminded that God is still God. That he has the final word. He has the final word on pain, on injustice, on abuse, and on fairness. When we think of evil and wicked people, you know, sometimes we think they win while good and decent people are punished. You know, I think sometimes it's best for us if we want to get through this world is to, you know, don't complete the scorecard until the final whistle is blown, so to speak. See, at that point, God will make the correct judgment call the wicked will be punished the righteous will be rewarded and I think at some point in time that knowledge has to give us comfort especially when we look at the atrocities that are happening in our world and we cannot preach about the wrath a God of wrath without the God of love but the wrath of God grows out of his love which is interesting as a manifestation of love when you think about it. Charles Spurgeon said, he who does not believe that God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through the blood of his son. Interesting concepts that come out of this whole aspect of looking at God as judge. So how does one escape the anger of God? Well, Nahum tells us. He tells us back in chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good. Interesting, right? This whole thing, that's tough times, they're being oppressed, and what does he say? He says, look at man, God is good. 
God is your refuge in times of trouble. Are you in trouble? Go to God. That's what he's saying. Turn to God. He's your refuge. He's your fortress. He's the one that you need to hide in. And he cares for those who trust in him. So if I trust in God during these times, he will care for me. And no one who turns to God will ever experience his wrath. Do you hear that? You want to avoid the wrath of God? Turn to him, right? Um, you know, this complaint that God is a God of wrath seems to picture him as being vengeful without reason, as being determined upon the destruction of humankind, the very thing that he created. But it's, it's never so. That's not who he is. God only exercises his wrath when people have rejected his love, when they've rejected his grace, when they've rejected his constant um, appeals. You know, there is a a way of escape. There always has been all the way along. We just need not face the wrath of God. No one really needs to face the wrath of God. God's whole purpose has been to call people's attention to to him. That way they, they may take hold of it. He cares for those who trust in him. You know, uh, I, I look at our kids' ministry, I look at what's going on, and again, we reiterate that nobody can be grandfathered into the faith, right? You can't ride into heaven on your parents' or grandparents' coattails. So we pray for our kids, we even pray for ourselves to make their faith their own. And I think we have to cling to it, right? It's not what the generations did before us. It doesn't matter what my parents or my grandparents did. We must personally accept the invitation to come to God, the God of salvation, as it's laid out in Scripture. Because for when we stand before the God of judgment, and we will all stand at some point in time before the Lord, it's too late at that point to make a decision. But we have a way to avoid God's judgment. Jesus bore the wrath of God that Nineveh bore. But Jesus took that wrath so that we deserve so that we could be spared. In the same way Nineveh was spared when her people repented, Jesus took God's judgment on the cross. And all of the wicked, all the vile sins were nailed there with him. He alone is our Savior, and we need to turn to him. We need to trust him. We need to follow him. And Nahum serves as a warning, driving us to the cross of Jesus. So when I say it's a mirror when we read this book, the mirror is saying, who are you going to? And there we see, at the cross, God's perfect combination of love and justice. has poured out his wrath against sin. On who? On Jesus. Not on you and me. And his love is evidenced in Jesus' willingness to die for our sins, receiving the punishment so that, why? We could be set free. And all we need to do, really, is go to Jesus, repenting of our sins, trusting in his free gift of salvation, not for a moment or for a season, like the Assyrians, but fully and forever. It becomes our lifestyle. And, you know, again, I say this all the time. I don't say it all the time, but the, the, the statement that it's true that God loves the sinner, but hates the sin and... It sets people off. It's a trigger phrase. But that's only part of the story. Sometimes we use it as the only story. No, it's only part of the story. The Bible tells us that if a man loves a sin and holds on to it at all costs, refusing the grace of God, then he becomes identified with his sin. Think about it. And when we're identified with our sin, then eventually the wrath of God against his sin is also directed against the sinner. I've heard this illustration. I think it puts it beautifully. Imagine a man. He's convicted of stealing. 
he goes and he steals. He gets caught. Goes before the judge. And the judge that uh, sentenced him, and he argues the, to the judge that the sentence is unfair. It's unjust. And the judge says, well, why? Why is my sentence for you in stealing unjust to you? Because, well, what judge, uh, it's not me who stole, it was my arm. And therefore, it's un- unfair to, uh, for you, the judge, to sentence me to jail. Okay. You know, the criminal basically presents a case that the only thing that you can do, judge, is sentence my arm. And so, judge, you need to let me off. Because my arm did the stealing, not me. So, what did the judge do? Well, he resolved the issue by sentencing the man's arm to five years in jail. Saying to them, if you want to accompany it, it was up to you. Right? kind of sounds stupid, but it's actually making the point. And so we become identified with that to which we cling. And this is what the Bible pictures. And it's time to reassert that God has this capacity for anger. It's time again to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. It's time for us to talk about what's in the scriptures. And that's one of the reasons why we like picking books of the Bible and walking through them, because it addresses for us even when we don't want to, like in the book of Nahum. You know, and again, I don't know about you, but I've heard people saying that, you know, if you'd only talk about the God of love, you'd fill the churches. You know, if you'd only talk about a, a God of love, they would turn from their sin, they'd be drawn to it. If that's what you should be preaching about, well, the facts prove exactly the opposite. For the last 30 years or more, the message of the wrath of God has been almost totally absent from most Christian pulpits, with the exception of the extremists, who want everybody to go to hell. People have talked about a God of love. But what has been interpreted in the minds of our culture is really a God of permissiveness. One who will let you do anything you want and get away with it. And I believe as a result, churches are emptier than ever before instead of being, turning people towards God. People have defied God, refusing to believe and turning away from him. And no doubt we've all felt overwhelmed by the darkness, both within ourselves, but in our culture when we look at it, in our world. And Nahum lived in a dark time, a time in which the faithful few must have wondered how long they're going to have to resist cultural and spiritual compromise. And Nahum reminds us that God cares about the suffering of his people. He does. Have you ever found your will to do what's right weakening as you become discouraged with what you saw in maybe in your life or in the world around you? The prophet name reminds us of God's active hand working even in the darkest times to bring justice and hope throughout the world. I want us to transition to the communion table right now. But I want to bring you back to Nahum 1.7 that says that the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. That he cares for those who trust him. He cares. I love that. 
And what we're about to participate in is all about Jesus when you think about it. And you can prepare your wafer and your cup. An ancient tradition, when you think about it, that is filled with emotion, that is filled with meaning, that has huge theological significance. And so before we participate, let's just pause. I want to read two passages that I would like you to reflect on. 1 Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In him we have the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. And he cares for those who trust in him. And so everything we have is in Jesus and he gave it to us. He has provided this celebration that we call the Lord's Table, Communion, Eucharist. Back in 1 Corinthians, we read that Paul writes, he says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In remembrance of me, he he says that twice. So how do we remember? What are some of the ways that we can do that? I think one of the ways is that we look back. We look back at what Jesus did for us, right? I look back, I realize all the things that he has done in my life. He has forgiven me. He has given me a second chance. He's restored my life in areas. He has helped me in the hard times. He's brought healing to my body. He has been there for me when other people have not, right? Look back. Look back as to how good God has been for you. But don't end there. Look within. Again, communion is a time for us to look and examine our life within. Maybe you need to pray, Lord, if there's anything in my life that's not pleasing to you, if there's any, something that, you know, a place where I've been disobedient, you know, or God, I, I, I feel far from you. Maybe that's your words this morning. I've drifted away from you. Maybe you just need to say, forgive me. And as we begin to look within, we, we see what Jesus did was to make a way for us. We remember that it is Jesus. It's not my good works. It's not my do's. It's not my don'ts. It's just all about him. It's just all about Jesus. And he paid the price, right? He took on the wrath of God so that I can have this relationship with him right now. And so whatever has happened in the past, even if it was this week, and you may feel that you don't deserve that. You, maybe you don't feel that you should even have this cup and this wafer. Listen, that's okay. None of us do, but it's being offered to you. It is who he is. You know, he is the good, good father that we sing about. And so we look back, we look within, but we also have to look ahead, people. We know that Jesus Christ is our redeemer. He's our healer. He's our hope. He's our everything. He is coming back again. And we can trust that with all of our hearts. And so that's what we do when we receive communion together. We look back, we look within, and we look ahead. So let's embrace this moment.
we do this to experience this together the best we can in COVID. It's the heart of the church, breaking bread with one another. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he blessed it. He broke it and he said, this is my body given to you. And so what does he do? He gives healing, he gives peace, he gives restoration, he gives reconciliation, our hope and our future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the bread, we thank you for the body, we thank you for what you did for us. Lord, we thank you that there is healing, that there is hope, that there is strength, and we thank you that you put us back together again. And Lord, we receive this this morning, and we think uh, in, in remembrance, and that we are looking back, that we are looking within, and we are looking ahead and remembering of you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the bread together. And the same night he took the cup, he lifted it up, he said, this is the blood of the New Testament. This is the new covenant. This is forgiveness. This is the new beginning. This is a fresh start. This is the difference in eternity. This is what he did. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the blood that was shed for our sins. Lord, I thank you that we can say again, we need you, Jesus. We are nothing without you. And across church life, and no matter what has gone on, we thank you. Thank you, Father, that there is forgiveness of sin. And we pray right now that you would lift the shame, that you would lift the guilt, that you would lift that heaviness off our lives. Because the blood of Jesus has already lifted it. In Jesus' name, let's take this cup together. If you need prayer or some sort of connection today, please don't hesitate to reach out to the number of the screen. Phone us here, email us, do whatever you need to do. Catch us after the gathering. Love to sit and to talk, and we'll respond as soon as we possibly can. People, you've been called, you've been equipped and embodied with good news. You receive a blessing so that we can be people of good news in a world that is desperate for grace. So, are you willing to receive another blessing before you go? Because in ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. And so, Soul Sanctuary, today I ask God to bless you with grace in these times. May your body receive restful sleep and nourishing food to maintain your health. May you encounter extraordinary thoughtfulness that is the best of humanity. And may you find your own empathy and concerns for others each and every day. And above all, may you experience the peace of God in the middle of the storm. The peace that believers long before us described as passing all understanding. So go in peace, soul. Love your neighbors, wear a mask, wash your hands, and live the church. We'll see you next week.